And do take a copy of God's Word there. If you don't have your own, you'll find it uh, in the, there's a copy in the Pew Bible. With the Pew Bible there, you can grab that and turn to Romans chapter 8. About halfway through this wonderful chapter, the, what has been recognized by many as the greatest chapter in the Bible. We're looking at verses 19 through 22. It's page, under, uh, page 944 if you want to use the Pew Bible. In verse uh, 17, Paul first introduced the theme of suffering, uh, saying that uh, if we're going to be heirs with Christ, that means we are going to suffer with him in order that we must be also glorified with him. And last week we looked at verse 18, where having introduced the theme of suffering, Paul uh, steps back because people are kind of, uh, you can imagine as they hear that, they're a little nervous. What's this? I've signed up for suffering to be a Christian. And he says, You need to understand, though, the sufferings of this world aren't worth comparing to the glory that's to be revealed. And in our verses this morning, in our consideration, that theme of suffering and glory continues. Uh, Paul puts them, though, on an even greater scale than just the individual uh, and speaks in cosmic terms. Uh, Speaking of the created universe, you're going to hear creation repeated a number of times. And when you hear that word in these verses, we're talking about the created order, subhuman creation. We're talking about uh, inanimate creation. We're talking about the stuff that we just sung about, rocks and trees and skies and seas. Uh, Paul wants to get us to understand that this idea of suffering and glory is actually bigger than us. um, And it applies to the created order. So that's our uh, consideration this morning. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body's dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. 
And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Thus far, the reading of God's word. From September 7th, 1940, all the way through May 11th, 1941, the city of London was the target of a sustained uh, bombing campaign from the German Luftwaffe. The Germans called it the Blitzkrieg. Everybody else called it the Blitz. And the result of the Blitz, that means lightning war, by the way. The result of this lightning war was that 40,000, over 40,000 British citizens died. About another 46,000 were injured. Uh, The city itself was essentially uh, leveled to the ground. Homes and buildings destroyed or damaged, including iconic landmarks like Buckingham Palace, St. Paul's Cathedral, and and others. And it was at that time that famed uh, author H.G. Wells, you know that name, Um, and if you don't know the name, you probably know his books. He wrote um, War of the Worlds, for example, The Time Machine, uh, many others. H.G. Wells, uh, a native of uh, England and living at that time in London, surveyed his beloved city and he made a comment, uh, borrowing from the Greek philosopher Epicurus, and he said this, Either God has the power and does not care, or God cares and does not have the power. That's what he said as he looked out on the ruins of London. Either God has the power and he doesn't care, or he cares and doesn't have the power. As I said, he was channeling a Greek philosopher, Epicurus. His line is this, Is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he is not omnipotent. Or is he able but not willing? Then he is malevolent, malicious, evil. Is he both able and willing? Then whence cometh evil? And is he neither able nor willing? Then why do you call him God? I wonder if you've ever looked out on the world and, and thought something similar, something along the lines of, of what Epicurus or Wells said. If, if God has the power, then he doesn't care. Or maybe he cares a lot and just can't do anything about it. Uh, we look at natural disasters. We look at large-scale calamities. We see the world as it is, and we think, where is the power and the care of God in all of this? And yet, our passage uh, turns our, our natural inclination about these things up on its head. Because you know what Paul says? Paul says in this passage, the reason the world is as it is, is precisely because of the power of God and the care of God. 
God is in control of this world, even if it doesn't seem that way to us. And we need to remind ourselves of this. We need to return to this fundamental fact over and over and over again. When, when you can't see very clearly outside because of the uncontrollable raging wildfires in, in Canada that are uh, polluting uh, the, the air, when, when you maybe are, are unable to visit a loved one uh, in the hospital or in a nursing home because of a, a viral outbreak that has shut down a society, uh, when you turn on the news and you hear of mass shootings or flash floods, earthquakes in Syria, train wrecks in India, anytime you feel like sin and suffering are actually uh, the controlling and dictating influences in this world, the powers in this world, you need to return to this fundamental fact. Here it is. God controls the world. He's got the whole world in his hands. And as Martin Lloyd-Jones once put it many years ago, he says, I cannot imagine anyone really having any final comfort who does not understand why the world is as it is. Let me say that one more time. Lloyd-Jones said, I cannot imagine anyone having any final comfort who does not understand why the world is as it is. Well, in verses 19 and 22 of Romans 8, Paul tells us, why the world is as it is. He also tells us how one day it will be changed. And he tells us what it's like in the meantime. There are these three historic markers that divide the text for us. First, Paul will show us, and he does, all these verses are filled with a rich imagery that personifies the creation. He really wants us to understand this and feel the weight of this. So he's going to show us first that creation was subjected and creation will be liberated. And then in the meantime, creation is, is waiting with, with eagerness and hopeful expectation. So that's our consideration this morning. Creation past, subjection. Creation future, liberation. And in the meantime, creation present, this anticipation, this expectation. We begin with creation's past, uh, defined by this, this term subjection. You're looking at verse 20 with me. Now, subjection. To subject someone or to subordinate them. That's another word. That, that means to, to force them or to compel them to do something that they wouldn't otherwise be doing. To go in a certain direction. Well, what was the world subjected to? Well, according, again, to verse 20, uh, we read there quite clearly that the world was subjected to futility. Frustration. Another word we could use uh, would be vanity. That would be a very literal, uh, uh, appropriate translation. In fact, uh, when uh, a number of scholars set out to translate the Old Testament into Greek and they came to Ecclesiastes chapter 1, they used this Greek word that we find here in the ESV futility. They used that Greek word to translate the famous line of the preacher, vanity of vanities, everything is vain. Same word. This idea of, of frustration, futility that the world was subjected to a vain existence where things don't work right. And why did that happen? Well, the creation didn't choose this path. You see Paul 
Paul personifies the creation as though it could make a rational decision when he says this didn't happen willingly. It's not as though they wanted this to happen, but rather it was a path chosen for creation because of him who subjected it. And this is a really important question now. We want to say, who is the him? Who is the him that subjected it? Um, It's an important question, and there have been some different answers given over the years, uh, recognizing that sin and suffering... Uh, are the hallmarks of the devil. Some have suggested that he's the one in view here. He subjected the world to this vanity. Uh, but, of course, that, that gives uh, far, much, uh, far more uh, authority and power to the devil than he deserves. Uh, he can't lay a finger on a square inch of God's creation without God say so. So it can't be the devil that subjected it. Others have said, well, Adam's fall plunged the world into sin, so he is the one who subjected the world to futility here. That makes sense up to a certain point, but if you think about what happened at the fall, Adam didn't subject anything. Actually, the exact opposite happened. He lost subjection of the world, right? He was supposed to subdue the earth, subject the earth, have dominion over the earth, and that was taken away from him. He's not subjecting anything. And so that leaves only one plausible explanation for who it is that has subjected the creation to frustration, and the answer is God himself. And of course, when we go back to Genesis 3, we see that's exactly what has happened. Turn there with me to Genesis chapter 3. We're considering creation's past, and this is the key moment that Paul is alluding to here. Man has rebelled. Adam and Eve both have eaten of that forbidden fruit. And in verse 17... Of chapter 3, God speaks to Adam and he says this Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. So let's not give sin too much credit here. It's not that Adam's sin had the power to subject the world to futility. It's God's curse that subjects the world to futility. Adam sinned, Adam rebelled, and it's not, though, until God comes on the scene and says, because you've sinned, this is the response. This is what sin deserves. Sin didn't do it, but sin deserved it. And so God's curse subjects the world to this vanity. It was God's decision that the punishment for sin would be thorns and thistles. And that means that the reason that the world is as it is, is because of God. Now that means, if if you've heard that, I mean, if you heard what I just said, and you actually think of the implications of it, that means we have to swallow some tough truths there. The world is as it is because of God. What does that mean? I want to say this very soberly and seriously, but respectfully. That means that the fact that People are dead in, in, in Texas this week after those tornadoes went by. That's because of God. Uh, the reason that there are diseases is because of God. The, the reason that there are birth defects 
is because of God. The reason things break down and don't work is because of God. Now listen, it's not because God made a mistake. It's not because God's weak. And it's not because God is cruel. It's because God determined that was the appropriate punishment for man's sin. But the reason the world is as it is, is because of God. He subjected this world to the realm of frustration and futility. And yet, Lloyd-Jones said that the only way we can have real comfort is to know why the world is the way it is. Well, how does it bring me comfort to know God is supposed to be my loving father is the reason that the world is the way it is. The reason there are diseases and and the reason there are pandemics and the reason there are wildfires and the reason there are these floods that wipe out places like Neon, Kentucky... How does that give me any comfort to know God's the reason for the way the world is as it is when the world is not really a great place to be? Yeah, we see, we see the power of God here, right? But as H.G. Wells said, power without care is, is terrifying. Remember, Epicurus says, if, if God has power and doesn't care, he's malevolent. He's evil. He's malicious. He's punitive. How does this give us any comfort? Well, for back to Romans 8. You look at verse 20 and look at the very end there. This is so critical. How Paul puts in this tiny phrase and yet it's packed with important, comforting truth. The end of verse 20 is the care of God and the comfort for his people because he says, yes, God subjected the world to this frustration and yet he subjected it in hope. In hope. That is... This subjection came with hope in view. Uh, Hope was part of the equation all along. The subjection was, was never designed to be final, and only God could design it that way. John Murray says this, Hope conditioned the act of subjection, and hope continues to condition the vanity and corruption imposed upon the world. Hope is is infused in the world the way we see it. There's the comfort, right? Because God does care. We've seen his power. He's subjected it, and yet he subjected it in hope. There's there's a care from God. Uh, We could even say that the subjection was built upon hope, and quite literally, well, that's in Genesis 3. We read the curse in, in, in verse 17, but what comes right before that? Verse 15. It's the promise that things won't always be this way, but that the seed of the woman will come and he will crush the seed of the serpent, the one who loves the suffering and sorrows of this world and God's people in it. God promises in Genesis 3.15 the hope that things will not always be this way, and it's only after he declares the hope that he subjects the world. So we could read verse 20, and we could read it like this, that God subjected the world to futility, but that futility was founded upon gospel hope. Good news founded upon a promise that things will not always be this way. And so we learn that this isn't all that there is. The world, the way that it is, isn't the way that it always will be. And so the subjection will give way one day to liberation. So that's the second thing we, we saw in creation's past. It was subjected. In creation's future, it will be liberated. Look at verse 21. Paul switches from the past tense to the future tense. He says that this hope is, verse 21 tells us what the hope is, that the creation itself 
will be set free from its bondage to corruption, and it will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Now, there's a, I think, a really profound application here that maybe we could pass over if we're, we, you know, just kind of reading this quickly. But, but you see, that statement is meant to widen the scope of our understanding of the salvation of God. That God's salvation is so much bigger than we usually give it credit for. Um, we usually think of this world, this created universe, the earth that we live on. We think of the earth as, as really just as, as, as a place in which individual salvation narratives uh, happen. That is, heaven is really what it's all about. And, and all, that the earth, all that the earth is for is for people to be converted, to evangelize your neighbor and to save them before they die so that they can get from, from this place that doesn't really matter to the place that really matters, heaven. This, this is just like the staging ground. And yet, we see here that the earth is not just the place where we get saved. The earth itself will partake in salvation. It will be a recipient of salvation itself. That there's a rescue plan, a liberation that is planned when the creation that's held captive under the curse of God one day will be liberated. It will be made free. It will be redeemed. Frustration will give way to freedom. That is all comprehended in the biblical conception of salvation. Salvation is not just about our justification. That is not what salvation is strictly about. Salvation is not just about our justification. It's about our glorification. That's part of the equation. If you think that salvation is just about having your sins forgiven, then you don't really get what you have coming. It's so much more than that. It's about the redemption of your bodies being made perfect in holiness, not just so that your sins are forgiven, but so that you'd stop sinning altogether. That's what we have waiting for us. And it gets, that's like, you know, the infomercials. Wait, there's more. There's more. Because it's not just about our glorification, but what Paul ties together here in Romans 8 is that our glorification is bound up with the world's renovation, the world's restoration, a salvation that comes to this created universe. That's salvation in a biblical conception. And my question to you is, do you have a big enough view of God and what he does? Do you have this this cosmic sense of the gospel? Do you think of salvation in these cosmic terms? An Old Testament Jew would have. They, They hoped in the coming of the Messiah, not just for the forgiveness, the salvation that he would bring to them, but the salvation he would bring to the created order, the liberation he would bring. Let me read for you a handful of passages from Isaiah. Isaiah really loved this theme. You find it in the Psalms too, but consider this. Isaiah 11.6, talking about the coming of the Messiah. This is what will mark the coming of the Messiah. The wolf shall lay down with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. Isaiah 35, 1 and 2. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. Now, Paul personifies creation in Romans 8. He's getting his, uh, that idea from Isaiah, from some of the Psalms. Isaiah 55 and verse 12. You shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you will break forth into singing And all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Isaiah 65, 17. Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. Or Isaiah 66 and 22. 
For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain before me. You know, this is why Charles Hodge uh, once wrote that nothing is more familiar to the readers of the Old Testament than the idea that the whole face of the world is to be clothed in beauty when the Messiah returns. And that theme continues in, in the New Testament as well. Let me just read one verse for you from Second Peter. You can write it down, Second Peter three thirteen. According to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. This is what Jesus does. This is what God does through the gospel of his son. So don't sell Jesus short. He can do so much more than just forgive you from your sins. He can liberate this entire created universe. Not only can he, but he will do it. He will reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. Colossians 1.20. I wonder if, if you remember... Maybe some of the young kids here remember, too, or know this, too, the way that C.S. Lewis describes it for us in Narnia. Remember what happens in the line, the witch in the wardrobe, right? We have the the white witch ruling Narnia, and and under her tyrannical reign, the subjects are wallowing in, in the shadow of terror, and no one dares go outside in case they get turned to stone. But it's not just the citizens of Narnia that are suffering, Right? Because under her reign, Narnia is best described as being always winter and never Christmas. And yet the people are clinging to the prophecy that says when the true king, Aslan, comes, everything will change. This is the prophecy. Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. And when he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we will have spring again. When Christ comes, we'll have spring again. There will be a a renewal of all things. That's literally the language Jesus uses when he's talking to his disciples about about the coming of his kingdom. In Matthew 28, 19, he uses this phrase, the renewal of all things, the, the springtime of all things. And so that's what the future holds for creation, this liberation, this freedom from corruption. Well, what about until that moment? What defines creation's presence? If if creation was subjected at the fall, if it will be liberated in in the future, what about right now? Well, anticipation is what defines creation's present moment. Anticipation. Will you go back to verse 19 with me? We skipped over it. That was intentional. We're back there now. Verse 19. Paul says this. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. That phrase, eager longing, is a really interesting phrase. Uh, literally, it has this idea of, of, of craning one's neck, uh, of standing up on your tiptoes and trying to see something. Uh, boys and girls, maybe you know that when you've been in a crowded place, maybe, maybe along the street as a parade goes by and you can't quite see things because there are these these rude adults who are standing right in front of you, right? And, and you're trying to see what's going on. Or maybe you're at an exhibit at the zoo and you're trying to get closer to the glass, but there's too many people in front of you. So, boys and girls, what's the first thing you do when you can't see? You look to mom or dad and you say, lift me up, right? Put me on your shoulders so that you can see. Well, Paul personifies the creation as though it's looking for somebody to lift it up on its shoulders so it can see What's coming next? What's going to happen? It can't wait. It doesn't want to miss it. What does it not want to miss? 
the revealing of the sons of God. This is a phrase that that speaks to the, the glorification of all believers. All believers, not just male believers, right? We, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. It's probably worth reminding ourselves that when Paul uses this language of, of sons of God, he's, he's not being sexist. Rather, he's stating something that would have been really profound in his culture, in his day and age. Because he's saying that God's blessings upon us are so great It's like we all receive that double portion inheritance that back in those days would only go to the firstborn son. He says, but when you're a Christian, male or female, you all get treated that that way. And so he calls women sons here. Sons of God is talking about all believers, including women. And he's elevating women to a status that nobody else would have elevated them to. He's saying that the gift of salvation comes to men and women in identical ways. There's not a tiered system. And so, yes, when we read sons of God, Paul does mean sons and daughters, but we lose you know, that astounding point Paul's making if we don't leave it as it is written. Paul is saying that in God's family, unlike any other family in his day, daughters are treated as good as sons. Daughters will share in this revealing on the last day. So the, the world is on its tiptoes waiting for the revealing of the sons of God, of, of believers, this glorification of believers. So what does this mean? And I want you to turn now to 1 John 3, 2, which explains this verse in a really helpful way, what Paul's talking about. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2. So Paul has said that, that the world is craning its neck, it's, it's on tiptoe for the revealing of the sons of God. First John 3, 2 helps us understand what that is exactly. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. What's John saying? He's saying it. If you're a believer, you are a child of God. Right now, that's true of you. But you don't necessarily look it. Uh, not perfectly, at least. You don't share in that family resemblance of holiness. Not in a perfect way yet. And so what we will be, though, is not yet visible to the world. It will be revealed, though, when the Son of God is revealed from heaven. And when Paul talks about Uh, the revealing of the sons of God, he is talking about the return of Christ. That's when the children of God will be made like the Son of God. That's what he's talking about. This glorification happens at the return of Christ because in God's design, we become what we behold, and on that day we will behold Christ, we will see him as he is, and we will be changed. We will be made perfect in holiness. We're waiting for that day when the Son returns. And you know who else is waiting? The creation. The creation is longing for that day, craning its neck so it doesn't miss it. And why? Because its future is tied to our future. Uh, It can't be changed until we are changed. And that's not merely a temporal thing. It's not just that that they happen at the same time, that, that, that Christians are glorified the same time that the earth is renewed. It's, it's not just that. They're connected not just in a temporal way, but in an essential way. 
What I mean by that is that the creation can never fully be set free until you and I are set free from sin. Why is that? Well, think of it like this. Imagine you go to a play and um, the, the set decorations are exquisite. The costume design is flawless. The, the script is, is well-written. It's tight. It's, it's, it's everything that, that you want in, in a good play. Except the acting stinks. In fact, it's horrible. You leave that play, even though the set design is beautiful and the costumes are perfect and the lighting was, it was, is, was spot on, and you would still say, that play stunk. Right? Because the, 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 the acting derails everything else. Well, in a similar way, this earth, this world, is, is meant to be a theater. A theater for God's glory. And the theater cannot be appreciated as long as its main actors are not contributing their part. As long as we use the gifts of this created world to rebel against the creator, which is what we do when we sin, then the creation cannot fully display the glory that it's meant to. But, but, when God's children receive their inheritance at the second coming of Christ and become perfect as he is, all will be well and the world can't wait. There's this anticipation. And there's one other way Paul describes the anticipation. It's in verse 22, and we're we're concluding with this consideration here. Verse 22 Paul says, uh, speaks of the groanings of, of this world right now. He says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning together. All parts of it are groaning in the pains of childbirth until now. That's really an important metaphor. You know, as we've talked about the reality of the futility of this life, the sufferings in this life, the frustrations of this life, we need to keep in mind the nature of that futility, the nature of that, those sufferings. Uh, it's a suffering, this is so important, it's a suffering unto life. Unto life. J.V. Fesco says, creation is not on its deathbed, it's in the maternity ward. You know, Something I learned about five years ago is that the screams of a gunshot uh, victim sound a whole lot like the screams uh, from a woman given birth. And yet, when you know the context of where those screams are coming from, it changes the whole tenor of, that, of what's taking place in your, in your, your response, right? The one is, is literally a, a scream of... of Pain unto death. And the other is a scream of pain unto life. Right? Well, the, 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 the mother who's in, in labor, she wants the pain to be over, but not just so that she feels better. It's because she knows when the pain's over, she can hold her new baby. And Paul is saying something similar here. That the world even though it's marked by suffering and trouble and toil and pain, at the last day, life will be the result. The dead will be raised to new life, and and all things will be made new. Yes, the world is groaning right now, but it's not a groan of despair. It's a groan of determination 
get me to that day. It's a groan of anticipation. And I, I would hasten to add that if it was not for Jesus Christ, it would only be a groan of despair. You know, one wonders if those messianic texts, I read a number of them from Isaiah, if, if they're actually the reason so many of the Jews of Jesus' day didn't think he actually was the Messiah, that he was the one. Because think about it, the Messiah has come and yet nothing changed. The world still seems to be subjected to futility. There's nothing that's been liberated. But what the Jews didn't know then, that you and I can see now, but what they didn't know then is that it was by sharing in the pains of this world that Jesus would bring in the joyous freedom of the next. You know, he lifted up his voice in that chorus of groaning with the rest of creation. He, he groaned within himself, John eleven thirty three tells us, outside Lazarus' tomb. He, he, he gave up his life with a groan upon the cross. But having done that, the wrath of God has been satisfied. The debt has been paid. And so when he, re- when he returns, it will no longer be with a cry of anguish, but with the cry of command. First Timothy 4.16 tells us, Jesus experienced the old way of life so that he could usher in the new way of life. Well, H.G. Wells' complaint was that either God's powerful and doesn't care about our suffering, or he cares and he just can't do anything about it. He's not powerful. And yet the gospel, the gospel tells us that he's completely wrong, Mr. Wells. The gospel shows us the power and care of God, and the gospel promises us the power and care of God. It shows us, right, at the cross, we see the care of God and that he would undergo the very suffering that he subjected the world to. He cares for us. And then at the empty tomb, we see his power, that he defeats that subjection, that frustration, and that vanity. The gospel shows us, and the gospel promises us, because what is the cross and the empty tomb? That's a little picture of what we're going through right now. We suffer now, but it's a suffering unto life, unto glory. And so the Christian cannot agree with H.G. Wells' nihilistic and pessimistic outlook on life. And you know who else does not agree? The hills and the rivers and the rocks and the trees. You know, they know that the same power that made them is the power that subjected them, but it's the power that soon will be unleashed to liberate them and to make all things new. The creation is longing for that moment when they will clap their hands with joy and sing together for Christ comes to judge the earth and he will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. And so if inanimate objects know how to rejoice in God, surely you and I who share in their liberation should rejoice in him as well. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this window that we're given where we can can understand the way the world is and why the way is why the world is that way and we're given such good hope such good comfort to know it won't always be this way so yes oh god in your power you've subjected this world because of the curse of sin the curse due to sin and yet you're so good that in your nature You could not let your good creation be overcome by the wickedness of man and the effects of sin. But you've promised 
a savior. A savior for your people, yes, but a savior for your world. We long for that day when Christ will come and, and we will be made new and there will be a new heavens and a new earth where inhabiting that place we will know that there is no more tears, no more pain, no more death for the former things have passed away. Behold, the new has come. Oh, Lord, would we share in that eager expectation of this created world, standing on tiptoe, waiting with bated breath for the day when Christ returns. Keep us faithful until the end. And we do pray, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen.